morning, Grace America. Chew Hewitt, that's Johnny Erickson. Todd, uh, alone yet not alone, the no longer nominated for an Academy Award song that until yesterday was nominated for Academy Award. I'm using it to kick off today's Hillsdale Dialogue with Dr. Larry Arn, president of Hillsdale College, because it is a uh, an extraordinary uh, indication of everything that has gone wrong with uh, American culture over the last couple of years. Also joining us, Dr. Jeff Lehman, who is uh, a member of the faculty of Hillsdale College. This week, we are continuing our conversation about St. Augustine and his great book, The City of God. But Dr. Arn, I, I sent that to you and Dr. Lehman earlier this week because I, I thought it was indicative of the tension between our civic culture and the religious culture and Augustine was very much writing about that at the time that he wrote. And I'm curious, do you think we're at the same we're at the same place now where Augustine was when he started to watch the decline of the West all around him? Uh, well, it's uh, I, I'm a student of Winston Churchill, so it's wrong to say yes to that. Uh, <laughs> but I will say that this is a serious thing. I mean, it, it looks to me like that it's okay to host a million-dollar party and have celebrities there and glitz and charm in order to promote your film for the review of the Academy to win an Oscar, but you can't send an email to 70 people you know. And that seems to be the proposition they're going to have to defend. And and I think they did it because she is avowedly Christian and they were afraid what she might say from her wheelchair as a quadriplegic and accepting an award. I really do think that that's what they were afraid of. One one has to suspect that. And, uh, you know, their claim, apparently, is that it was improper for her to do it because she had been a member of the Academy and she knew those people's names and addresses because of that. And she was an elector and therefore she was stepping outside her station. Not, not Johnny, actually, the writer, but, but Johnny's yeah. saying it. The writer was the one who was an elector and outside yeah, of the station. There you go. That's right. And yeah. And so that's what's improper about it. But gracious, I mean... It's uh, these things are enormous campaigns because there's an enormous amount of tension and money in getting nominated, let alone win. So and, and the cultures, I guess they're just not going to they're not going to intersect. The city of God and the city of man are now separate, at least if uh, the seculars have their way. Dr. Lehman, uh, that brings me roundabout and suddenly to Augustine's city of God and I, I want to make sure we take the time over the next couple of weeks to really put this book in its proper place in the West, because this is important. What what he does is actually still resonating through Western civilization. I know every student at Hillsdale reads it. It's in the Western civilization reader. But would you give us just the basic facts of when it occurs and why he writes it? Yes. The City of God was written roughly between uh, about A.D. 412 and 427, give or take a year. It's happening on the heels of the sack of Rome, which came in 410 by Alaric and the Visigoths. So in the Roman Empire, there's a great deal of uh, damage to the Roman imagination of uh, the possibility of of Rome lasting very long when the barbarians are are descending and they're able to even take Rome itself. So... uh, 
the immediate re- uh, response of many pagans was to blame Christianity for it. And their their argument took on, in, in some cases, kind of a, a street version that was very popular among uh, uh, the, the Roman uh, peasants, if you will. Um, and that was more, uh, we had been unfaithful to the Roman gods. Ro- Rome's greatness was due to the favor of these gods. And by accepting Christianity and rejecting paganism, Rome basically incurred the wrath of Jove and the other deities. Now, uh, but, let's pause for a moment, because sure. I always, uh, yeah. when we do the Hillsdale Dialogue, I like to uh, uh, never assume that which is not yet put into evidence. And a lot of people don't know what the sack of Rome means. And so what's that mean to the people of, of 410? Well, what it means is uh, the the barbarians basically came and uh, did huge damage to the city. Uh, it didn't have a lasting effect. There were subsequent sacks of Rome and, and other big cities uh, in, in the Roman Empire, uh, but it, it left this deep impression on them of being vulnerable and the greatness of Rome having been broken. So uh, there was really a state of kind of uh, of worry and uh, confusion, and, and basically they were looking for someone to blame. Yeah, put it, put it this way you Hannibal achieved only this he was nearly 20 years with an army in Italy and he destroyed two huge Roman armies but all he was ever able to do was ride up to the walls of Rome and throw a spear over them Rome had been inviolate for hundreds of years and was the symbol of stability in the world and then these Visigoths came down from the north took the city uh, and raped and pillaged and burned. And so that was that was a change in the structure of civilization. Now, I'm curious if, if you think an event like 9-11 has a similar uh, civilizational traumatic effect, um, even though we're back and they rebuilt the towers and our GDP is great, but nevertheless, nothing like that had ever happened to us before, Larry Arn. Pearl Harbor was far away in the middle of the ocean, and we were shocked, but we were never threatened. What do you think? Any kind of trauma that lasts from such an event? I do think that, and uh, I'll tell you why I think it. Uh, Winston Churchill figured out in 1898 that something was changing in war. The specific something was technology was becoming so powerful that our ability to destroy might, in principle, overcome our ability to build. And so whatever time it took to build those jet airplanes and the Twin Towers, it took less than an hour to destroy them and kill a large number of the people who were in them. And that means that if you just apply that principle more generally, you could see, you know, I mean, one of the things that went around, it hasn't gone around much because there hasn't been another major uh, killing terrorist attack in the United States since that one. But they were saying things like you could put a, a device the size of a refrigerator and you could ship it to some city and the city could be gone. And that means what use is there in building cities? That's right. That kind of reflection is the conclusion that people could draw about the sack of Rome. And then, Dr. Lehman, people start looking for somebody to blame, and they're not going to be content on blaming the barbarians or al-Qaeda. They're going to look for someone else to blame. And Augustine is responding to that. And, and so the first people to blame were the Christians. That is not immediately intuitive to me as to why that would happen. 
Well, in addition to the popular argument that I outlined before about, you know, infidelity to the Roman gods, that can only be taken so seriously, right? Because we we know that the, the pagan elite had long since abandoned any real belief in, in the Roman deities. And so you have writers such as Varro or Seneca and Cicero himself that all to one degree or another would dissemble. They, they publicly engaged in religious rituals, but privately they, they certainly didn't believe these things and at times even detested them. Uh, so the real problem, as many saw it, was that the rise of Christianity uh, brought about a, a decline in public spiritedness and divided the loyalties of Romans. So um, they were indirectly responsible for the de- deterioration of the Roman Empire by making it lose its nerve, if you will. Now, I I would gather that right now some liberals who are listening to this might argue, Dr. Arnold, direct this to you, that in fact America was weakened by exactly the same kind of fundamentalism and that the civic religion was undermined by the religious right rising up over the years. And I've heard similar arguments over similar movements for a long time. And then the religious right would argue that the secular absolutists on the left have done the same thing. Is there merit in any such sweeping indictment when things like barbarians and terrorists strike? Well... So, uh, to start with Augustine, and then answer your question, um, on the one hand, Jesus Christ is a very different kind of deity than Jove or many of the pagan gods. He isn't warlike in that way, and he he is the Prince of Peace, and so and then also his authority comes from right outside any possible political system, and he doesn't establish one of his own. And so the Roman way was to incorporate the gods of the cities they conquered into a pantheon so that they became uh, honored and worshipped by the city and protected by the city, and Christianity, like Judaism, is not amenable to that process. Well, what about now? First of all, Christianity does command turn the other cheek but it does not command failing to defend the innocent and and from from aggressors and it's just a fact that the american the army of the united states of america is heavily christian right now today and it always has been yep and i will wonder i'll come back and ask after the break whether or not that is always been the case about the armed services and if so why don't go anywhere the city of god is on the table saint augustine's great epic work this week and for many i suppose in the future dr larry Arn, president of hillsdale college dr jeffrey layman a member of the faculty there it's the hillsdale dialogue all of which are available at hugh for hillsdale.com or at hillsdale.edu stay with us we'll be right back hey there i'm scott bertram and i'm the director of the hillsdale college podcast network This show and all the other shows on the network are listener-supported. That means we hope for, we count on, frankly, we rely on the support of listeners like you to make our educational outreach possible. One of the best and most convenient ways to do so is joining the Liberty and Learning Society. That's our exclusive monthly giving group. And in this month of March... We are looking for 300 new members of the Liberty and Learning Society. When you join, you'll help defend liberty through education, and you'll make shows like this one possible far into the future. All you have to do is visit hillsdale.edu monthly and complete the secure online donation form. If you need to pause or stop your gift at some point, no problem. Just call us. One of our friendly students or staff will help you. But today... 
will you be one of the 300 new members of the Liberty and Learning Society in March? Go to hillsdale.edu monthly to join the Liberty and Learning Society today. Help us bring these shows to you and other Americans at hillsdale.edu monthly. Twenty-one minutes after the America Hugh Hewitt, it's the last radio hour of the weekend. That means it's the Hillsdale Dialogue with uh, one or more members of the faculty and staff at Hillsdale College of Michigan, Hillsdale.edu, for all of their free and online courses. If you like this dialogue or any of them for the last year and a half, you can go to Hillsdale dot or Hugh for Hillsdale dot com, and there's a button at Hugh Hewitt dot com. We dove into St. Augustine last weekend with uh, a brief. A hint that the Confessions is something you might want to read. The City of God is something you must read. And in fact, the Hillsdale students all read some of it. But it's a massive work, and it's massively important and has been for 1,600 years. Joining me to talk about it, Dr. Jeffrey Lehman, Dr. Larry Arndt. So, Dr. Lehman, you said in the last segment that it was an argument, that, that Augustine was responding to an argument made by some that Christians had undermined the state. When we went to break, Dr. Larry Arndt was saying, in the United States, Christians defend the state in great numbers in the uniform of the United States. Was there something that was not the same about Christianity at the time of the late Roman Empire that is different now? Not essentially. I, I wouldn't think. Um, there were certainly Christians serving in, in the Roman forces, and uh, I think it involved a lot of deep confusion about really uh, the implications of Christianity for a Roman citizen. Uh, again, back to the, the fundamental divide, uh, they thought that the Christian would be divided in loyalty between uh, what Rome required and um, what the higher and nobler country uh, that they were uh, a part of would require. And so uh, this would basically enable a kind of breakdown in, in their their duty as citizens. Rome, by the way, has been the official religion of Rome has been for almost a hundred years Christianity. And the Roman armies had fought and well in many, many places and many times. So that's what that's what's causing me confusion. It is natural to me in the modern era that Christians would be disproportionately represented in the armed services of the United States. In fact I'm having a, a major of the Marine Corps over for Super Bowl Sunday this weekend who I who I happen to meet because of a shared religious affiliation, and, and he's a deeply devout man, and I don't know him very well, but but he's not very unusual, actually. There are many, many deep believers in the uniform of all the services, and it's always been, and I suppose it will always be that way. So I'm just curious as to why some in Rome decided to put the blame on the Christians for the collapse of the state. Uh, either of you, why, why would that be intuitive, or are they just a handy group to scapegoat? Well, the, the obvious thing, start with that, the obvious thing is Christianity places one's responsibilities elsewhere first, right? And, that, and that's true. A second thing, uh, Jesus is not a general or a conqueror and doesn't anoint any. And then add a third thing since we're on it. Uh, I'm teaching, I just finished teaching the Constitution course this afternoon. We're reading John Locke, and John Locke sounds different from Aristotle in some ways, although the differences are not as great, in my opinion, as they are on the surface. But why the surface differences? If you live in a society that that where you are worshiping a god who is not particular to that society, 
then you owe a loyalty outside it. And in the founding of America, that gave rise to the idea of religious freedom. Yep. So those stresses are there, right? And Rome, after Constantine, had an established church, the Christian church, but people were struggling with that. And, it, and, and these signs are signs that they're struggling with it 100 years later. There's a whole new kind of politics of, uh, implied by Jesus. And I think those complaints are one of the frictions that, that indicated the need for that new kind of politics. And now the, the next obvious question to you, Dr. Lehman. St. Augustine's obviously an able man and a saint and a great intellect. But does he really think a book, a book of this length, and, and talk a little bit about its character and its depth can actually turn the tide in the argument against Christianity or the argument for Christianity? A book? I mean, when it's hard to get books read, much less, you know, sent around the world? Well, I think the answer is yes. He certainly thought it could have effect. Now, how how ultimately uh, effectual it would be, I'm, I'm sure he had no idea. But uh, in fact, uh, writing was taken very seriously. And uh, in order to respond to these criticisms, Augustine felt he really needed to not only, in a way, respond to the charges of the pagan detractors, but also put a positive account of the truth of the Christian faith in its place so that people would understand. There were many fundamental misunderstandings of Christian teachings, in addition to what uh, Dr. Arne has said. Basic things such as the Christian idea of the universal brotherhood of all men uh, versus the established Roman political customs. Of course, they had masters and slaves and so forth. And and one worry was that this would pull apart the fabric of Roman society as a society itself, right? We would do away with masters and slaves. We would do away with other things like this. You're supposed to love your enemies, right? So if you're loving your enemies, how can you defend Rome against her enemies? Uh, meekness and patience were taken as virtues, uh, as opposed to what they thought was more properly the honor and courage and the kind of resolve in the face of difficulty that would enab- enable Roman, uh, Rome to defend herself. And so, so the, uh, the ancient Scipion sort of uh, valor, people thought it was being undermined by Christian uh, antipathy to violence and meekness? That's, that's one thread, definitely. Uh, that shows up later with Nietzsche, doesn't it? It does. All right. So, so uh, tell us a little bit about the nature of the project, because it is, when you say comprehensive in your notes to me, I don't think it quite communicates to the audience just what City of God is. Okay. The City of God is Augustine's largest sustained work. There's one uh, that's a little bit longer, the Inerationis and Psalmos, but, but that's really a collection of sermons on the Psalms that have been taken together over many, many years. This is one sustained argument over 22 books. And I've got a copy here sitting next to me. It would serve well as a doorstop. It's a, it's a huge book, and uh, it's very articulately uh, laid out. Uh, the first 10 books are really his response to the charges of the pagans. And then from book 11 through book 22, he gives a positive account. And central to that account, of course, is the notion of the city of God, which the book is named for, but also the earthly city and how the two interact, how they're separate, what their natures are, and uh, both in this life and in the life to come, what we should uh, think about them. Okay, Larry Arn, let's take it down to the Steelers fan. What do you mean, city of God, city of man? What's that mean in the title that Augustine is trying to drive at? Well, first of all, this is a, this, this book is, we said this last time, this is a working out of arguments that require to be worked out by the introduction of Jesus Christ and universal monotheism into the world. And so, 
uh, as St. Augustine uh, conceives it, the city of God and the city of man are separate realms, and the city of God is a standard for the city of man, which is always lower. And they, they've only been one in one time in human history, and that was before the fall of man. The city of God is, is uh, the city of man, I'm sorry, the earthly city, is corrupted by fallen man, and all of the regimes in it have been so corrupted, including the Roman, and there's a major reinterpretation of Roman history that goes on in this book. That's one of the reasons it's so long. So, so the city of God is a standard, which is very much an American kind of thing, for the city of man and stands outside and above it. And we will be right back to continue the conversation on the Hillsdale Dialogue, all of which are available at Hugh for Hillsdale with Dr. Jeffrey Lehman, Dr. Larry Arn of Hillsdale College. Check out everything at Hillsdale at hillsdale.edu. I'll be right back. Thirty-four minutes after the hour, America. It's the last radio hour of the week, and I always spend it with Dr. Larry Arn, president of Hillsdale College, and one or more of his colleagues this week, Dr. Jeffrey Lehman. Uh, we have been talking about Augustine last week, this week, and for a few weeks to come, because the city of God is a very big deal in the history of the West. And uh, and I am not ashamed to say I'm so glad to have an outline provided by Dr. Lehman, because this book is an intimidating book, and uh, many is the time I picked it up, and many is the time I put it down saying... Oh, if I only had the time. And and I want to start even with the title, Dr. Lehman. I didn't know it came from Psalm 87, verse 3. Glorious things are spoken of you, O city of God. And I didn't even know it was an ironic reply. I'm not even sure I know what an ironic reply is. Uh, well, in fact, basically, the, the, the pagans were charging this uh, Christian faith with destroying Roman civilization and the Roman Empire. And so, of course, they were slandering the city of God. So it's ironic in the sense that uh, in calling it the city of God, he speaks of the glorious things that will be said of it. So uh, clearly a reply and opposition to the, the uh, account given by the pagans. And how big was it then? And, you know, we have bestsellers all the time. Uh, last week I interviewed Secretary Gates. He's got the number one book in America. And before that, Charles Krauthammer had the number one book in America for 22 weeks. I mean, excuse me, for 12 weeks, which was a very big deal to be on the number one. And and we talk about it. But those books will pass. They will be gone. Uh, even Dr. K's book will, will fade within a year or two. But the city of God has really had influence that sort of boggles the intellectual historian's mind, doesn't it? It certainly does. And that from the the time that Augustine wrote it. In Augustine's own time, he was, I, I don't know if celebrity is the right word, but he was very widely known. And uh, one of the bishops of the Catholic Church had a tremendous influence, uh, not only on theology, but on a whole host of other areas. So uh, things like this would happen. Augustine would write uh, a, a sermon, and then those sermons would be disseminated and then presented by other pastors around the Roman Empire. He had that kind of a status. When Augustine wrote something, it was heard in his world. So even from its own, you know, the time of inception, it was very influential. Uh, Dr. Arn, you've got these beautiful statues all over the Hillsdale campus. You've got Margaret Thatcher and Winston Churchill, and soon Frederick Douglass will be there. Why isn't Augustine there? Well, we debate about that. And uh, Augustine, Aquinas, Shakespeare, you know, there's arguments for more. And uh, and 
We deliberate about that. We'll see what happens. Uh, <laughs> I walk into a nest there to step on something. Okay, so all the way through the 19th century, I, I have to ask Larry, you wrote The Founder's Key. Did the framers concern themselves with Augustine? Well, in uh, not not the way they did some other authors, but on the other hand, everything concerns itself with Augustine. You, you were saying earlier... Um, um, what's the influence of the book over time, we know about these arguments that Christianity was responsible for the for the uh, sack of Rome because Augustine repeated the arguments and refuted them, right? Everybody knows right. Everybody knows he did that. Who were these guys who were saying that, right? <laughs> yeah. they, they're lost in time. But this 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 problem that 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 the world faces, is and see we're seeing a, a new aspect of human nature in my opinion with the birth of Jesus Christ and things have to adjust because of it and this adjustment of dividing the city of god and leaving it as a standard by which to judge the city of man that's also present in a different way on a rational basis in cicero very explicitly well th- th- that's the world we're working with after Jesus, and this is a major tract in advancing that argument. And their solution to the argument, the American founder's solution, is to leave religion free, any religion that obeys the moral law, and practically speaking, what that meant was it left Christianity free. Now, I'll come back to the to books one through ten in the next segment, in the last segment of this week, but take us to the end, Dr. Lehman. At the end, is Augustine arguing for theocracy? No, he's not. He really isn't. He thinks that in this life, you'll always have a state where there's a city of God and a city of man. And of course, these are not empirical entities. In other words, we're not going to go out and count noses and be able to tell. In fact, it's very hard to know uh, who is in one city or the other because we can't judge the hearts and souls of men. But uh, here and now in this in this life, Augustine held uh, really that there was no ultimate hope for, for a universal peace that was strictly the, the, the results of efforts by, by man. Uh, so he hoped as best to uh, have happy uh, small cities or kingdoms that could peacefully coexist. I'll be right back with the last segment of this week's Hillsdale Dialogue, the first 10 books of Augustine's City of God. Don't go anywhere, America, except over to hillsdale.edu. If you haven't signed up for Imprimus yet, the Speech Digest, you should do so. It's free. I'll be right back on the Hugh Hewitt Show. Hey there, I'm Scott Bertram, and I'm the director of the Hillsdale College Podcast Network. This show and all the other shows on the network are listener-supported. That means we hope for, we count on, frankly, we rely on, the support of listeners like you to make our educational outreach possible. One of the best and most convenient ways to do so is joining the Liberty and Learning Society. That's our exclusive monthly giving group. And in this month of March, we are looking for 300 new members of the Liberty and Learning Society. When you join, you'll help defend liberty through education, and you'll make shows like this one possible far into the future. All you have to do is visit hillsdale.edu slash monthly and complete the secure online donation form. If you need to pause or stop your gift at some point, no problem. Just call us. One of our friendly students or staff will help you. But today, 
will you be one of the 300 new members of the Liberty and Learning Society in March? Go to hillsdale.edu slash monthly to join the Liberty and Learning Society today. Help us bring these shows to you and other Americans at hillsdale.edu slash monthly. Four minutes after the hour, Americans, my weekly Hillsdale Dialogue with Dr. Larry Arn, president of Hillsdale College, and one of his colleagues this week, Dr. Jeffrey Lehman, a member of the faculty there. Uh, each week we explore some great work of the West, and we do it in roughly chronological order with occasional frolics and detours into various things. Uh, last week and this week and next week on Augustine, this week on the first ten books of Augustine's City of God, and, and I was thinking that... Uh, uh, a, a couple of years back, Dr. Lehman and I put out a book called Talking with Pagans, a series of interviews I had done with Christopher Hitchens and Richard Dawkins and a variety of the other new atheists, uh, Sam Harris, etc. And there are all sorts of different sorts of pagans running around Rome. And one of the detractors uh, in, in, in my published work saying, these people aren't pagans, they don't believe in anything. And I should have sent them here because there are all sorts of pagans that uh, Augustine has to deal with. Could you delineate them for us? Sure, sure. Well, and we, if we think about paganism and pagan theology, if, if we could call it that, um, there are different kinds or versions of, of pagan thought. Uh, the, the most basic would be um, mythical theology, that is the theology of the poets. And it's a debatable question whether how, how many people really took that seriously ever uh, other than as an image of true things, right? Uh, the second would be the civil theology, which really was part and parcel of uh, the Roman Empire was the official theology of the city. Uh, there were uh, public sacrifices. There, there were religious elements to uh, the governance of Rome. And so that was a part of, of, of the, the, the political entity itself. And third, there the, the natural theology of paganism, which was the, the theology of the philosophers. So this is more carefully reasoned out uh, with a view to the perennial questions of human nature and the nature of God and so forth. So it, it, there's broad and loose. There's various different forms. And so at any given time, uh, Augustine might be speaking to one or another or perhaps more than one. And is one more difficult for him to rebut Larry Arn than the other? I think the answer is yes. And I think I know which one is the hardest one for him to answer. But what's your answer to that? Well, um, of course, he has great respect for Cicero and, and learns a lot from him and does undertake a partial refutation of him. And that's a tall order. So, of course, that's the one. Yeah, and why does he have the most trouble with Cicero? Explain to the audience why Cicero is the biggest challenge. You can get rid of Zeus, right? That's not so hard to get rid of Jupiter. Uh, and the official theology of the city, he doesn't really have to get rid of. But why does he have to, you know, come to blows with Cicero? Well, the other two, I mean, first of all, one of the reasons, you know, th this is in the Socratic dialogues commonly, too. And, and one of the bases of the charge against Socrates that he was guilty of impiety for which he was killed Socrates is, is often making the argument that these are not the kinds of things that God would do, you know, cheating on their wives and, and sleeping with their children and all that stuff. God wouldn't do that. Yeah. yeah, that's right. That's not, you know, and so it doesn't make sense that perfect or higher beings would behave in this way. So there's a reason to doubt it. The claim that God is in everything is also, you know, in worms, you know? So there's, there are problems there, and they're obvious. On the other hand, 
Cicero is a tremendous human being and and a deep thinker. And the things that he was for, the things that he argued for and to, were good things and even divine things, and Augustine recognized that. However, as a defense of Rome, he, he, he wished to undercut that and did very effectively in a way that lasted until the Renaissance. Uh, and, and he also thought that Cicero was insufficient in the level on which he thought because he did not take proper account of the providence of God. I also have to ask, this is a very human question, and it occurred to me reading your outline, that Cicero is the greatest rhetorician ever, uh, allegedly the greatest man of the law courts and the greatest arguer. And Augustine had set out to be that man, uh, Dr. Lehman. Is there a bit of jealousy in this? Is there a bit of, I've got to tackle the best one that there is? Well, that's an interesting question. I don't know about jealousy, but I think there is a kind of uh, awareness on Augustine's part that uh, if you're going to respond, you're going to have to go to the high watermark and respond there. And that's what Cicero is. Uh, as as Larry has mentioned, it's it's certainly the case that if you're looking for a, a consistent, coherent, well-thought-out view that, by the way, is deeply grounded in natural law, you got it in Cicero. And so you have to have an answer for Cicero or else no one's going to really listen to you in the end. And then, and, and to wrap up, uh, Larry, how do your students react to the city of God? Well, uh, of course, in the beginning, they react just as you did. <laughs> it's God, still new. God, <laughs> God can I later. ever read this? <laughs> <laughs> but no, it, 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 it isn't as hard as its bulk would imply. That's <laughs> so, right. So, uh, so, yeah, a lot of them love it. And uh, all of them think it a duty to read it. <laughs> and Dr. Lehman, is that your experience as well? It certainly is. And it, it, with a work this massive, you want to go small and, and just have regular readings. In fact, I'm rereading it myself, have been for a few months, uh, it, just a few pages at a time. That's really the only way you're going to get much out of this work because it's very long, but at times it's also very condensed as well. So there's a lot going on there. And it really, it's a kind of education in itself, if you will. And a quick comment on his style as a writer. Very rhetorically powerful, I would say, and I, I think Augustine has a, a kind of a beauty and a winsomeness to his style that makes it very engaging. Larry Arne? Imagine the rhetorical achievement that he made here, because this claim is lodged against his faith, and his response to it is in the beginning simply direct and powerful, but then it becomes, over the course of it, transi transcendent. This is a mind capable of that. And is he trying, is he, we got a minute, is he trying for art at the same time he's trying to explain this? You don't produce things like this by accident. Uh, Dr. Lehman, you agree with Tremendously that? Tremendously artful work. The Confessions and the City of God in that respect are amazing, and they really benefit from deep study. I wonder what he would have been like around the dining room table. Do we have an account by a contemporary? 
Sure, especially about his youth when he well, would have been a party. Well, <laughs> quite a lot of fun. And again, not the kind of guy you want in your president's office. <laughs> Dr. Larry Arn, President of Hillsdale College. Dr. Jeffrey Lehman. Next week, we're going to go to books, part two of books, 11 through 22 of The City of God. If you want to read ahead, a lot ahead, get to work right now. Uh, thank you both. Hillsdale.edu for all things Hillsdale. And you really ought to live there and find all the richness that is available there. All of these are dialogues available at HughForHillsdale.com. There's a button that will connect you with HughHewitt.com. Stay tuned. I'll wrap up the week with Tarzana Joe next.